0: Hello, I'm your host, Olivia Braffman, and welcome to If She Can, I Can, the podcast that aims to address ambitious women that little bit closer to figuring out how to navigate both the fulfilling career and the family we desire. And well, challenge is the role we're supposed to play in it all. Each week, I'm gonna be talking to the inspiring women who, in their own special way, have done just that. Let's get into it. I am so excited to be joined this episode by Dr. Camilla Kingdon, President of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health. Camilla, originally from Cape Town, moved to London to pursue her medical career, becoming a consultant neonatologist, so that's newborns, in two thousand. She works at the highly regarded Evelina London Children's Hospital with an interest in neonatal nutrition and donor milk banking and somehow makes time to also focus on medical education, having been head of the London School of Pediatrics and Child Health for the last five years. Camilla is also involved in medical careers to enhance the working lives of those critical pediatric NHS workers. She even has a master's in medical careers management and co-leads the careers advisors network for the Royal College how she's currently fitting all of this in, I'm not sure, but also while supporting two wonderful children through university. And what a testament that is to your will and grit to show up for everyone and make a difference to this world. They say, after all, you know, give work to busy people. And that's certainly true if you really want to get things done. So Camilla... Welcome to If She Can, I Can. So happy to have you. Well, thank you.
1: It's um, it's a, a privilege um, to be here and I'm looking forward to having a great
0: conversation. So I wanted to pan back a little bit to your upbringing. So back in Cape Town, South Africa, what was life like for you in those early years growing up there?
1: I actually, in many respects, had a fantastic childhood. Uh, you know, I, I'm a white South African um, that... Um, meant that we had really a very privileged upbringing. My parents weren't particularly well off, but as white children growing up in South Africa, it meant that we had access to really outstanding education. And I ended up going to a high school, a fantastic high school, a big co-ed state school. Because it was the apartheid um, era, it was a white-only school. But we had a, a huge mix of children who were white. So there were children from all social demographics within the white population group. And and so, you know, one was exposed um, in a, in, to some extent to children from all backgrounds. Uh, but the resources that we had in the school, the, the kinds of teachers we had were really inspiring. And it was a very difficult and challenging time in South Africa. If you had an inquiring mind. There were very strict rules about what children could be taught. But we had teachers who, once they'd kind of covered the curriculum, were more than happy for us to start entering into discussions about kind of wider issues. And there was no escaping the fact that we were living in a rather unusual place where you know you knew that just a couple of miles down the road um, there were black and mixed-race communities who were living very, very different lives. And so actually, I think what the school allowed us to do is to start asking some of those kind of difficult questions about you know like why is it that we live like this and why are there haves and have nots and what are the origins of that now many many schools in south africa at the time would have stopped that conversation very very quickly because actually it, it, it wasn't actually legal for for teachers to encourage that kind of discussion but but we we did and and that led to a some really fantastic discussions and 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 started opening my mind to the fact that there were some very, very different lived experiences in South Africa at the time. And I know you're probably sitting there listening, thinking, well, obviously there were, you know, we all knew how terrible things were um, back in South Africa. But actually, for those of us living there, we didn't know. And that was the tragedy of apartheid um, and the tragedy of what was called the Group Areas Act, which was the legislation that, that forced people of different ethnic groups to live separately. Because, in living separately, you have no idea about other other people's lived experiences, even though it was just down the road and And so actually, um you know I look back and I sort of think how was it that we weren't we didn't know, but we didn't know, And we'd grown up like that. you know, literally, you get to the post office and there's a white entrance, and then there's everybody else's entrance, and you go to the if there's a public swimming pool, it'll be for white children only, even the beaches were segregated, and so I know it, it sort of seems extraordinary now, but, but that was the way it was. And um, so actually, you could very, very easily live a very narrow existence that never led you to, to think beyond the boundaries. So the school I went to, and then ultimately the, the medical school I went to, started opening up these opportunities to think and question. And of course, medical school, We did. I went to the University of Cape Town, which is an English-speaking university, a traditionally very left-wing university, they, they explicitly started sort of breaking down some of those barriers and exposing us. And as a medical student, we did supervised clinics in the townships. And that was the first time in my life I had actually ever physically been to, to, into, you know, the big shack towns and, and, and squatter camps um, surrounding Cape Town. And suddenly you see how thousands, tens of thousands, ultimately millions um, of South Africans are living. And that was just an extraordinary eye-opening experience and obviously leads to a lot of kind of questioning about you know why have I got what I've got and they haven't and ultimately my role as a doctor and as a citizen to question that um, and of course you know I there were many examples of people who had found themselves in very very deep trouble with the police and so on by by questioning that so uh, you know there was a it was a very difficult time and I, and I think it sort of shaped the way I think about life and about privilege very significantly
0: absolutely and I think it's such a privilege even to you to have gone to a school that allowed you to ask the questions because if it's become such a shaping experience for you now and how could it not be for anyone but it could have been a very different shape had you not been allowed to understand things from from other from other sides wow and I often find you know going back to you pursuing that medical career direction often find that people that move into medicine are quite heavily influenced by role models or family or friends around them that somehow guide them to pursue that path or influence them to pursue that path. Was that was that the same for you? How did you sort of navigate to that as, as a career path?
1: I, I don't know. It's curious because I actually don't have any um, doctors in my family at all. At a very young age, I think I was about seven or eight, I just knew I wanted to be a doctor. I think, you know, there was a sort of sense in Africa of some of the kind of extraordinary missionaries that had come out to Africa and you know people who'd really done courageous things in terms of kind of getting out into communities and making an impact and I think I've always been driven by a desire I guess to make a difference and and medicine seemed to be something where one could make a difference now (laughs) Actually, ultimately, I have come to question that, and, and to some extent, that was one of the reasons I, I left South Africa. Was that actually I think as doctors we can make a difference, but actually a difference at scale is quite difficult. You know, you can make a difference to the patient in front of you, but how do you make an impact on a bigger scale? And that's much, much more challenging. And actually, interestingly, my father is still alive actually, but he he was a civil engineer, and he was out building roads and you know overseeing water supply and sewage removal and that kind of thing, that kind of big infrastructure work. And, you know, I used to look at things and I mean, that, that's how you make an impact at scale. You know, when you start delivering clean drinking water to communities, when you start giving them roads that work so that they can get out and about, you actually really do make a difference. As a doctor, though, actually, you're often just t- treating the patient in front of you and so how you make those kind of systems differences is is a is a very very different question and and something we may, maybe we want to talk about later on but i think my desire to make a difference back in back in you know as a child
0: was was really how i came to medicine wow and i wonder what what caused you to have this desire to make a difference what do you think it was that gave you that fire in your belly to want to go out in the world and and do something
1: I I I don't I I don't know. I um I think some you know each of us have our own set of kind of personal values and I I for me altruism is is a is, is a real driving force for me um this sort of desire to to reach out beyond myself to impact others um I mean I suppose you could argue I mean I could have you know teachers for instance make a massive impact on other people's lives and 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 so I think you know, teaching might have been something I wanted to do. I, I think I I quite liked sciences. You know, I think medicine was a was a was a good fit for me. You know, I think people guided me in that direction. You know, what it's like when you're at at school. You know, people sort of suggest things, and you kind of start exploring opportunities really based on what people around you are are, are discussing. So, you know, I think I, I might have done something else. But I think the desire to impact other people's lives from a kind of altruistic perspective was was always going to be kind of where I wanted to go and you know ultimately even when I when it comes to, came to choosing a medical specialty I was much more focused on on that kind of impact rather than other people who have other career drivers they might be much more interested in the lifestyle or interested in technology and doing things those kind of things just kind of weren't really my core values but this desire to make an impact has always been something that I treasured and it's been a real driver for me
0: mm, and clearly has continued throughout all of your career which is which is incredible to hold on to that value so strongly you mentioned before obviously you moved, you made the shift to London and and further pursued medicine what brought on that move how did that happen at what point were you at in your career when that happened
1: So I'd um, graduated from medical school and I had done uh, what we call house jobs, which is essentially what is known as foundation now in this country. And I guess I was about 25 and looking around and thinking, well, kind of like, what now? Most of my women friends from medical school were actually setting down and getting married. And and South Africa sort of culturally is... little bit behind Europe in those days so there was male and female kind of stereotypes which actually did filter down into the way people sort of expectations of their careers and lives and and so actually for for women it it was predominantly around I guess having a family and so on so there were actually were very few female role models who had undertaken further specialization in medicine and, and and really kind of furthered their careers of course there were some but but they the vast majority were, were men. And so I guess I was kind of looking around. I'm, I'm someone who is very heavily influenced by role models, i you know, I'm always looking around for somebody who I can sort of think, well, you know, I think her values align with mine. I wonder how she did it, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And and I didn't actually see an awful lot of women that I kind of thought, well, you know, I, I want to be like that. And so I, I guess I felt a bit uncomfortable, bit had rather itchy feet. And I my father is from the UK so I had dual citizenship and so coming to the UK was a was an obvious choice and I thought well I'll just come over spend a year see what it's like widen my horizons a bit and of course I came and then you know before you you know that sort of phase of life you make friends you settle down I started doing some of the postgraduate exams here and you know the years tick by and and I found that I'd settled here. So so that was the the, the reason why I most of my classmates, actually many um, South Africans do actually leave South Africa. Um, so they've, I've got a mixture of friends who stayed behind and some, some who moved. And it's been interesting watching their careers and how people have sort of shaped their lives. But you now I've had a fantastic career and it was the right time for me. And it was the start of a whole new
0: adventure. Amazing. And obviously you're so involved in medical careers and improving the working lives of doctors and you know specifically pa- pediatricians how how have working conditions changed since becoming a doctor for you so when you first arrived in London what was what was life like then versus maybe what what it might be like for for doctors today
1: so it it was it was very different and I think I hear a lot of senior doctors now sort of say well, you know, it was far tougher when we were juniors, There's no limit on the number of hours we were expected to work. You know, there was, a, there was no regulation around working hours back, back then. And so you, you do hear senior people now say, you know, the current generation don't know how lucky they are, so much worse when, when we were junior doctors. And we did work uh, hugely long hours, but the environment was very different as well. We worked in what are called firms. So that's a, a, sort of a sort of a structure within medicine whereby you have your junior tier, then a slightly more senior tier. You have the consultant in charge. And there was something about working in that structure that actually gave us a lot of safety, camaraderie. It's great for kind of building morale. It was all around the team. We used to have quite a lot of kind of banter. And so yes, the hours are terrible. You were, you, we moved jobs every six months, which was really so it was very difficult to kind of settle down. But the actual quality of work, work, I mean, I had a lot of fun. It was it was great, and rightly or wrongly, you know, if, if you showed a bit of enthusiasm, you'd be given more and more responsibility. Now you know you can question that, I guess, but but I was kind of up for that, and so I. It was brilliantly exciting, fantastic patients, amazing colleagues, real team spirit, and I absolutely loved it. I didn't go straight into paediatrics. I actually tried adult medicine for a year. I'd done obstetrics and gynaecology as well, trying to work out in my mind where my natural fit was. And When I eventually came upon paediatrics, I absolutely knew I'd found the right place for me, and I suppose maybe I don't remember the tough times, and they, of course there were tough times. But I do remember an awful lot of fun, and I think, I think things have changed dramatically, um, and the way junior doctors work now—in fact, all of the way all of us doctors work now—has changed enormously. Some of it is definitely for the better. I think standards of patient care are safer. There's far more governance around patient care to, in, you know, in attempt to set standards and maintain standards. We've learnt some you know really hard lessons from awful examples of care in hospitals, you know, famous um, examples that have led to national inquiries around poor care. And so I think there's no doubt that there's been a lot of improvement in the kind of care we deliver. There's much more regulation about the number of hours doctors are allowed to work. That's got to be a good thing. But I think, what what I would say is not an improvement is kind of shift work and the impact that that's had on how teams build that kind of cohesive, you know that that kind of that kind of morale that you have from belonging to a team and you know sort of being in the trenches together and you know how that that builds that kind of spirit and when you lose that actually that can make work quite lonely. It can mean that you know when you're dealing with really difficult cases or You know, maybe when a mistake happens that actually you then don't have the team to to wrap around you in quite the way that I would have had when I was a junior doctor. So I think although there are definite improvements, I I do worry that the kind of quality of working life isn't as good as when I was a, a junior doctor. And so I think we have to work really hard to try and kind of replicate or find other ways in which we can support all of us to thrive in medicine. Um, because it's, it's when you have doctors and nurses thriving that actually they give their best care. And we know that the, the, you know, there's some brilliant examples of where organizations or teams have been much more explicit about investing in team building and, and really been thoughtful about sort of leadership styles, for instance, that not only do you retain your staff and have improved staff morale, but actually, and not surprisingly, patient outcomes improve. So actually it's a win win it's not just about us looking after ourselves actually when we invest in our workforce you have better care you have greater patient satisfaction you have fewer complications so i think i think we do need to think differently about how we're doing it doing things now and I, you know there are some examples of where this is happening but it it needs to be the norm
0: absolutely like it is in the private sector that's what's going on in in order to make the the output far greater and bring that sense of belonging and absolutely there are there are synergies that that can be had with with the NHS as well now I know roughly how old your children are and I know you became a consultant in 2000 so I'm, I'm trying to do quick maths you must have been sort of roughly having children in and around the same time that you made this huge transition from junior doctor to consultant w- would that be correct and what was that like in that during that period
1: so i actually i actually received my letter saying that i had finished my training actually on the day my first child was born it was very strange and so yes that was Literally was two thousand, and so actually I then had a period of maternity leave, and then had to find a consultant job, and that was actually quite scary because you sort of kind of out out of the system because you're on math leave, and then trying to find a consultant job. So I, I remember that was that was quite stressful, and and then the other thing that I found stressful is that I trained full time, but I I was looking for a part time consultant job, and they didn't actually exist part time working, particularly at consultant never just wasn't a thing then. But I knew my husband um, is a radiologist. He was working full time. There was no way the two of us were both going to work full time and have a uh, have a young family. So I would I was more than happy to work part time. But it but it wasn't easy. And I but I think I pay huge tribute to some of the colleagues I'd had, some of the consultant colleagues I'd had in my last training post before I went on maternity leave, who were great and kind of were keen for me to come back as a consultant. And then when I said, I really would love to come back, but I don't want to work full time. And they were all men. Many men back in 2000 would have said, well, in that case, I'm really sorry, love to have you, but. But they didn't. And they basically said, well, how many hours do you want to work? And so I came back at more or less 60% whole time equivalent, which just worked well for home life and, uh, um, you know, good balance. And they were fantastic. And, and actually, one one of those original um, colleagues is, is still my colleague, and we, we share an office, and he's a really lovely man. And, mm. you know, I, I actually need to probably sit down with him and, and remind him that actually it was his ability to sort of... In those days, it literally was thinking outside the box, because it just wasn't a thing. They had to completely do me a bespoke job description and you know everything and but he, he did it and in fact then that lit, was the foundation to then lots and lots of other part-time appointments within our group and and now of course it's completely normal and men and women are working part-time some for, for reasons of childcare and others for reasons of doing other you know professional things or personal things and so it's much more normal but back then it was it wasn't usual I must say, I, I, even though they made it very easy for me, probably my biggest challenge was getting my mind into the part-time working mindset, and I still, I guess, struggle with it. I um I want back, I wanted then, and I guess I still want now to be seen as credible and committed. You know, I think there's a challenge there when you half your brain is at home and thinking about your children and etc etc and and you know how do you do that justice and how do you spin the plates I don't think it's easy and I think each of us finds our own way of doing it but I've had a constant constant kind of internal dialogue and it's it's still there about how do I do justice to really important but competing parts of my life and I think as a conversation my observation is that it's a conversation that women have more than men but but that's a bit of a generalization.
0: I I think you're right. And I wonder if the feeling of, am I less credible if I'm not showing up full time, in inverted commas, whatever that means these days, versus not, do you think that's sort of your own inner demon thinking, unless you do this, you're not as credible. And therefore there's, you almost feel like you need to overcompensate by getting involved in lots of different things. Or do you think actually, you have felt the stigma of you're less credible because you're not here as much.
1: So, I, 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 I can only speak for my specialty. I think in medicine, there are some specialties where it's still extremely difficult to be credible and part time. But I think we're very, very lucky as paediatricians. There are a lot of women now doing paediatrics, and it's, it's shifted the dial. And so, actually, and I think it's actually given a lot of male paediatricians kind of permission to be part time. And actually, I think that's fantastic. So I think it's much, much easier to do now and be credible. But I think your question's a really important one. And I think I have watched colleagues of mine who are part time, who've really struggled with this idea that they're not credible, who've then taken on heaps of other work responsibilities that have, necessarily meant that it's eaten into their non-work time it's done them no favors and and made their lives you know really complicated and difficult and you know then they feel bad because you know they don't spend enough quality time with their children they feel bad because they're not they feel they're not contributing enough at work so I think we, we should talk more about this because I think there are a lot of pitfalls that that we we fall into that with with actually just with a bit of perhaps mentoring to say just watch out you know watch out for that your natural instinct is to say yes I'll do yeah that and I can do that because I don't work on a Thursday but you know I could probably just dial into that meeting actually just watch out for that because it's the way we the NHS is structured at the moment and I'm sure this is true of all professions is that the needs and the asks are endless, so you, so you know, you could endlessly be saying yes, taking on more stuff. And now with online working, it's even easier to take on more work and roles and responsibilities that just endlessly encroach beyond your kind of designated work time. And I think you've just got to be careful to get the balance right. I think it's really, personally, I, I what I did was I actually found that being part time led to for me, an an awful lot of advantages over my full-time colleagues, because once my children were, particularly at school, suddenly I had, on a Thursday and Friday, because those were my days that I didn't work, I had, you know, nine till three, free, as it were. And actually, that's when I did my master's, because I had time on those days. And obviously, I did nights and weekends for my master's as well. But, you know, my full-time colleagues just couldn't do that. So actually, in a a funny kind of way, you can use part-time working to your advantage in terms of your professional development but i think you need to pace yourself and personally i waited until my girls were at school i mean i but i've, I've seen too many people just constantly take on new stuff even when they've got really small children you can hear the kids in the background and I, I, that worries me because i think we, we're seeing a lot of burnout at the moment we're seeing a lot of low morale and i think my observation is some of that's because of the pressures in the workplace and the demands of the patients we look after, et cetera, et cetera. But I think some of it is because it's very, very difficult to keep our boundaries between work and home clear. And, and I think that that is definitely contributing to people's wellbeing problems at the moment.
0: I think the key thing is just keep questioning your why. The fear is, I won't be credible if I do this. It's sort of, well, why is that important? Is it important? To some it is, to some it's just the stigma that exists around that that's driving us to do things that are outside of the boundaries of what truly important to us. It's more what society's making us feel obliged to, to go and do. But I think that continuous questioning of why do I feel like I need to do this? Why do I feel this way is such an important internal dialogue to keep happening to act as an almost barometer of taking on things or not taking on things. Because there's only so much you can do. And you know, as you say, you've got a You've got to look after your mental health in the process because it doesn't do anyone any favours. The only person that suffers is yourself. Now, you personally, you, you could have continued to be a consultant paediatrician, part-time, had a very wonderful career. You've got your wonderful family. You clearly had your sights set on that plus more, taking on presidency of the Royal College of Paediatrics. You did your master's. You headed up the London School of Paediatrics why and maybe this goes back to your I want to make a difference why was it important for you to do these other things
1: that's a very good question I I suppose I um I'm just conscious that each of us only has one life to live and it's about making the most of the time you've got and I know what I value and I value more than anything making an impact on other people's lives so that's I guess why I did medicine but increasingly I guess I wanted more than that I wanted to think that I'd contributed to you know some of these kind of wider these wider issues and I think you know that the medical career is such a sort of fascinating and and challenging one and I don't for a moment think I've got all the answers but I see around me a lot of people who've got a lot of questions who and increasingly are questioning whether they should even do medicine because because you know because the environment is is pretty tough at the moment. And I wanted to get myself into a position where I could help people make really sensible decisions about their working lives. But I wanted to do it in, in, a, in a credible way, which is why I started by doing the masters. I I what I I don't approve of people who just sort of dish out advice. I I think it's really important that actually when we are, when we're asked to support somebody who's trying to make a series of decisions, that it, it, that we enable them to make their own decisions and that that actually you approach it in a kind of coaching style. There is there. Is, I have no right to tell you what you should do or even strongly suggest what you should do, because I don't know. I don't know what's going on in your head. I, I don't know about your background in, in, the, in to a, a huge degree. I don't, I may not know what your kind of internal drivers are. And so really my role, if you're coming to me for advice, is to enable you to make the right decision. And so I wanted, so the the purposes of doing the master's was to really upskill myself in all those, those abilities to have good coaching conversations, to understand some of the psychological theories around how people make career decisions. You know, the, the natural instinct of a doctor is to fix somebody's problem. But when you're dealing with people and their careers, you're not fixing their problem. You're simply hopefully having conversations that enable them to fix their problem. And so actually, there's a real danger in having doctors doing this because they tend to preach at people and say, you should do this and you should do that. And that, I'm afraid, is just not the way to help modern workers make sensible and credible decisions around their kind of future working lives. And so the master's was just fantastic because it just opened me to a brilliant people who taught on the course, but also kind of all the kind of modern thinkings around careers, around leadership, around how you enable people to maximize their potential. And it just sort of chimed with everything that I think is important and what I want for myself. So my kind of The work that I've ended up doing, that's beyond my clinical practice, which was around medical education, medical careers, and now my role at the Royal College's College President is is really around trying to help people unlock potential, think differently about their lives, challenge people to break down some of these ridiculous stereotypes that we've got, particularly in medicine, about what you should and shouldn't do, and go well, well, why not? Why don't we have a you know, let's think outside the box does everyone have to become a consultant couldn't you think of a different career path why don't you take a break from your training and go off and do something interesting and different and then come back to it so those kind of conversations i think we've, we've got to do much more of that uh you know it's 2022 there is no right way of doing a career anymore you know we know that the most successful people are the people who have a growth mindset and who are what what the literature calls luck ready so people who get their minds into a position that they're able to seize lucky opportunities good luck can play a, a very important role in people's successful lives but the real trigger to a successful life is not just the luck it's it's having the mindset that can seize that lucky opportunity and so i spend a lot of time talking to people about trying to kind of realize what they've got around them and and be brave in their in their decision making and 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 of course it's something that I challenged myself to do the whole time as well
0: well clearly you've done you know in in the time when you wanted to go part-time and that wasn't in the rule book you know you had to put yourself out there and say I want to do this thing that doesn't actually exist and I want to challenge the reason why it doesn't exist and I just want to challenge you to think differently about the way you treat me that in itself is sort of what you're now guiding other people to lean in and, and attempt to do and I guess that luck for you was you happened to be saying it to someone that clearly bought into you and your future. And that's partly luck. I guess you could have been faced with one of those men that said, computer says, no, this is not how we do things. So it's either full-time or nothing. And that was your luck mindset creeping in.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right.
0: Yes. A lot of synergies. That's really, that's really fascinating. And I agree. I think there is... So many ways of doing things, particularly in medicine. I have to add, I'm married to a doctor, so I get a glimpse into this life, but I certainly don't pretend to, and I'm married to a pediatrician specifically, I don't, I don't pretend to really understand what you face on a day-to-day, but I find it fascinating that within medicine, you start out so young in university and you're just sort of on this train to consultancy, you know, off you go. And there are quite a lot of parameters that's bound the way that you exist. And and that's so different in the private sector. And in some ways, that's nice, because you're guided. And in some ways, you do have to think quite differently, if you want to push those push those boundaries away and think differently about how you want to carve out your own career.
1: Just on that point, I think the other thing to acknowledge is that I think generationally, what my generation wanted from work, I think, is different to what You know the current working younger generation in work want, and I think one of the risks in medicine is what you've just described, which is this: you're on this train track and you're just got to just kind of follow. There there is clearly security from having that rigid pathway to being becoming a consultant, but actually there are an awful lot of people saying, "Do you know what? I'm 28. I I don't want to be locked into." paediatrics is an eight-year training program I, i i don't want to be pinned down at this stage of my life i very much see my role now is 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 around you know how do we create flexibility within training within working lives that allow people to feel that they've got some control over what they're doing and have some can embrace different ways of working can pause their training to go and do some other interesting things and then come back. And and, and, then, and and then also in my president role at the college, it's also about saying to very senior people in the NHS is that don't stress about a trainee who wants to go out for three years and do something else. They will come back richer and more energized and able to contribute in a far more kind of meaningful way than if you keep them locked into this program. Um, and so actually my role now is not only about kind of trying to help younger people think creatively and imaginatively and bravely about their careers but it's also about reassuring the top end that actually you know what it'll be fine let them let these people have flexibility relax all these ridiculous rules that we've come into play over over decades in medicine medicine will flourish if we can embrace some of these generational trends in in ways of working but you know medicine is a very old conservative with a little c profession and it's and it's very resistant to change fortunately pediatrics usually is at the forefront of change so we're doing our best to kind of break down some of these barriers and encourage people to think differently about um, working
0: lives and going back to your life and your kids growing up through the years you're a working mother you're working part-time you've got a couple of days off but you're filling filling those days with masters and various other things How did you feel through the years in terms of being present for your children and involved in their lives, keeping your career going, having extracurricular things on the side? So I
1: mean I I remember, you know, at the time feeling huge amounts of guilt because I mean, you know, there were sports days that neither of us got to, all sorts of events that you you just couldn't get time off work to do. But actually what's really, really interesting is that I've got two daughters and We talk very freely about it, and and I've been very open with them about kind of those feelings and, you know, some of the kind of challenges of doing parenthood really well, but also career. And actually, I think the more I talk to my girls, the more I I think, I I am convinced that it's about quality, not quantity. Personally, my mother was a full-time mother, and actually, she became very depressed, and that actually had a massive influence on my sort of teenage years. I remember thinking at the time the fact that she didn't work, I'm sure contributed to her mental health problems. Now you could argue that because in fact, I've got two younger sisters, and we've all we all work, and we all think we've slightly shifted the pendulum in the, maybe too far in the other direction and and maybe that's the kind of way of life. but you know we were, we were very impacted by our mother's mental health problems and and i and I do believe that if she'd worked she she wouldn't have been as unwell as she was so i guess that was sort of in the back of my mind but my children actually you know every time i say now oh i feel so bad that i can't do such and such they're actually usually the first people to say listen stop worrying about it you know they're actually they're so lovely i mean they they i know they're proud of me and actually that that means a huge amount and, you know, when I was thinking of standing for president of the college, you know, obviously I talked a lot about it at home because I, it's a three-year term of office and it's a, it's a very significant sort of time commitment. And so we talked a lot about it at home and, and they were actually far more convinced that I should do it than I was. And so I think we as women spend a lot of time agonizing and worrying and feeling guilty. But I, I think actually, if you if the time you can give your family is quality time, that that's actually much more precious than sort of thinking I'm not there for every sports day or, you know, I've dashed in late and just managed bath time, you know, because I think we, we, we fret about these things. I think it, it's more about making sure that when you're there, you're present. And it's about putting, you know, I we have a rule that we don't have phones at the dinner table. So it's about, it is about focus and, and being present and trying not to let work distract you when you're at home. And, and even that's easier said than done, but I, I think it is achievable, and you you just muddle through as a family. And and most modern men now are, are much more involved in their children, and that gives a richness to parenting that perhaps you know certainly I didn't have when I was a child. And my girls are incredibly close to my husband because actually he now spends much more time around, and and is I mean my my eldest daughter just finished university, my youngest one's actually doing a year abroad. As part of her university degree and actually I noticed she now messages him much more help me set up this bank account I can't work out what SIM card to have and etc etc and he's much more involved now in doing those kind of things which actually I think is absolutely fabulous and and so i I think I think maybe as women we overegg
0: the the worry about that kind of thing well I think a I'm sure you you and your husband you are not in the most flexible of careers. So doing shift work, it's very difficult to sort of go, I'm just going to sign off for a few hours, go and do this. So it was really, would have always been really challenging for you. But I think the fact that you can have that conversation with your girls now and they can say, mum, we're so proud of you. I'm so pleased you said that because I think so many women who are listening, who have young kids who can't have that conversation yet and have that guilt of, am I doing the right thing by still going out to work to know that in 20 years time, they can have a conversation and go, oh, actually it was the right thing They're so proud of what I'm doing. And I wonder if, Camilla, you've had this conversation with them, but do they share in your ambition? Have you sort of inspired them to go on and achieve big careers or how, how, how do they sort of foresee their futures?
1: So, uh, yeah, that's very interesting because both my girls are sort of at that stage of early thinking around um, careers. I think the first thing to say is we've completely put them off medicine. (laughs) I mean, resoundingly put them off medicine. I mean, so both my daughters, the one thing they were clear about was neither of them was going to do medicine. And I kind of don't don't blame them because medicine definitely sort of dominate family meals and you know you just you know you know it's like you come home it's the evening you're sitting down for dinner and talking about what's happened in the day and it's usually around some difficult case or whatever and and I think some of the blood and gore descriptions at the dinner table have definitely contributed to putting them off so no I um I think What I've realized, actually, is that one of the great things about medicine is that security, is that you go to medical school, you do a degree, you come out as a doctor, and you're almost guaranteed of a job, and it's a job as a doctor. Whereas both my girls, one's done psychology, and the other one is currently doing media and communication, their careers and, and their job prospects are much less certain, they're much less defined and and so actually i it's it's really interesting now watching them and make, and it's led me to reflect on actually how lucky i was i you know i didn't have to worry about any of that stuff so actually for many many other graduates this is this is it's much more difficult and so we are, we are currently having lots of conversations at home for, for both of them about you know what next and how do you break into the world of work and how do you keep the balance between work and home life right and yeah we're just at the beginning of that journey and it's going to be fascinating to see where they end up but it's 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 hard and and I it's led me to actually now and when, when I talk to some of the junior doctors that I supervise at work or who I see for careers conversations who may be feeling a bit maybe a bit down on their career choices and questioning things is actually just look around and actually there are no easy paths to walk in a, in, a, in a modern career. And yes, medicine is tough, but actually we've got a lot of job security and in the current climate that, you know, that's, you should hang on to that and be very, very grateful for it because, you know, the, the, the world of work from, from the majority of other workers is much less certain. And the other thing is, you know, during the pandemic, I think we were very lucky because we could carry on coming to work. So we still got that kind of structure and the kind of team. And yeah, I look around the staff at the Royal College where I work, a third of our staff actually joined during the pandemic and have never known regular going to work type of, never got worked alongside their team members on a regular basis because, you know, it's now all hybrid working and so on. So I think there are lots of shifting tectonic plates at the moment in in the world of work more broadly. And I think we're, we're... going to have to see how it all pans out and and it'll be really fascinating to see whether actually that hybrid working plays to women's advantages advantage or not and 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 it's going to be really interesting to see who or who do become the kind of really successful women going forward and because I think I think a lot has changed and who knows what success is going to look like going forward
0: no absolutely that's a a lovely reflective way to bring this conversation to what I'm sad to say is almost the, almost the end because it's it's just amazing to get to talk to you. I'd love to ask you what your biggest reflections are when you look back at your professional and personal journey that's got you to where you are now. How do you look back at it? What are your feelings? Would you do anything differently? Which is the god awful question because we can't change the past. But do you do you reflect on it positively when you think about it now?
1: I mean, I've 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 got the most fantastic career and have had the most fantastic career. I I, I have really no regrets. I feel incredibly lucky. I've had amazing opportunities. I think if I look back. I would say to my younger self, those just worry less about what other people think and just trust your kind of inner, your values and your instincts and just be true to yourself. Because I think I spend a lot of time worrying about what other people might think about, you know, some of my visions and thoughts, how my some of my ideas land. Actually, forget it. Just stick to what you believe in. Because I think there's nothing more compelling than someone who's kind of got that passion and that, that, that kind of drive. It's, even if you don't even agree with what they're saying, people who are authentic, compassionate, driven, I find incredibly attractive. And, um, you know, those are the sorts of people I want as role models for myself. And so worry less about what other people think and just stick to what your kind of core beliefs and, and values are. Because you my experience is that 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 kind of carries you through the kind of ups and downs and you know some of those difficult decisions that you have to make and what and and and, and actually I've seen some brilliant examples recently of colleagues of mine who've come across come upon difficult times who kind of have kind of known what they needed to do next you know with a little bit of nudging have done it and it's and it's it's been the right thing even though it's it, 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 it felt very brave and difficult to do at the time. So I think there's something about bravery. It's about believing in yourself, and it's about sticking to your core beliefs. I, you know, I, I, that, that's what I hang on to and 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 try and use as my kind of mantra for navigating through life.
0: Oh, I feel like I need to just take a snippet of exactly what you just said and have it as a little audio clip that I can listen to on a regular basis, when <laughs> whenever you're kind of having those. I'm doubting myself I'm not sure I feel like that just sums sums it up perfectly in addition to challenge things. So that was such a big takeaway I took from you is challenge, you know, if things don't work for you challenge them. The only way to create change is to challenge. Someone needs to put themselves out there and challenge it and and you've clearly been testament to that throughout your career. Camilla, thank you so much. Thank you for your vulnerability and your honesty and your wisdom. And sharing today, it's been a huge pleasure to hear from you. So I really appreciate it. Well,
1: I'm very grateful for the invitation, and um, thank you very, very much for indulging me for a whole hour. It's been um, wonderful having this conversation.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to leave me a quick review and subscribe. It helps us reach a bigger audience of women more than you know. And. If there is an awesome individual who needs to share their story on this podcast, I would love to hear from you. My details are in the description below. I will see you next week.